2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's go ahead and read the chapter. We'll come back and make some uh, reminders about the context and then uh, jump into the text itself. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is uh, from the New King James. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that's called God or is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you may know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Uh, whose coming of the lawless one is according to the power, uh, the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he also called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. First and second Thessalonians were written about the time of uh, 5051 AD. Um, remember that the background of first Thessalonians is actually Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, Paul went into uh, Thessalonica he stayed there for about three weeks or three Sabbath days. And then he was driven out by the Jews and then went to Berea where they chased him down and, uh, and, and proceeded to continue to give him a hard time, so to speak. But it is that Paul was looking at the Thessalonian church and saying, I wonder what became of that church through whom I only spent about a month worth of time. And while he was there in Athens in Acts chapter 17, he had sent Timothy back to go and find out how that church was doing. And Timothy comes back, and Paul is so overjoyed because he was afraid for them and afraid for their faith that it was that he writes 1 Thessalonians to say, I am so grateful to God that you are still keeping on keeping on. I'm so thankful to God that you're doing great, that your uh, faith is growing, that you're continuing in the things that, I've, uh, that you've learned. And you find that in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and beginning of chapter 4 to say, now God's will for you, uh, Thessalonian church, is that you continue to grow and continue to abound. But what you find is kind of a common thread through the Thessalonians is not their unfaithfulness or not them wanting to be carried away by things, but their kind of misunderstanding about what happens whenever Christ comes back. What's going to happen whenever Christ comes back? Because 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you remember that there was a thought that those who had died had missed the resurrection. Okay, If somebody passes away before Jesus comes back, well, that's it for them. 
But Paul, in writing this word of a comfort in 1 Thessalonians 4, says, no, in fact, the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians has to do with a whole lot of what it is that we're talking about this morning. That is the coming of the day of the Lord. He says it's like a thief in the night. It's, uh, there's not going to be any expectation or anything that is going to point to that. But he's writing 2 Thessalonians because it seems like what the Christians were doing was, well, they were listening a little bit too much to maybe people that didn't have the knowledge that they ought to. In fact, he begins 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 like that, doesn't he? He says, uh, verse 2, we don't want you to soon be shaken in mind or troubled. Why is that? Either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, though the day of Christ had come. They're having a trouble thinking about, well, maybe it is, 1 Thessalonians, that we're going to miss the if we die first. Second Thessalonians, it seems like what they're saying is we've already missed the resurrection. We've already missed the coming of Christ. Oh no, what are we going to do? Here it is that we're now after the time that Jesus Christ has come back and we're still here. That's not a good thing. It seems like what, uh, what you're looking at there in verse 2 is that somebody had either sent them a letter Maybe somebody had spread the word, and you know how rumors go sometimes. Somebody had already thought that the resurrection was already passed. And Paul says, don't be shaken about this. Don't be confused about this. In fact, the entire first chapter of 2 Thessalonians has to do with the coming of Jesus Christ. Here these Christians are suffering, and they're suffering persecution and difficulty and affliction, all those things we talked about last week. And they're suffering for their faith, and if they've missed the resurrection, they may be thinking to themselves, why are we enduring this? Why is this going on? Why do we continue doing these things? And Paul says, listen, God is going to send back Jesus Christ. And when he does, that which was an affliction for you is going to be a comfort for you. And God is going to take those afflictors, those people that are persecuting you, and he's going to turn it around. And Jesus Christ is going to come in chapter eight, verse, or excuse me, chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and 10 about how it is that he's going to be revealed from heaven in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who don't know God, on those who don't obey the gospel. So Corinthians, you, or, I keep saying Corinthians, I mean Thessalonians, you guys hang in there. You guys keep going. Chapter 2 is him giving a little bit more detail about what's got to happen first before it is that God is ever going to send Jesus Christ back. That's kind of the background. As Paul writes 2 Thessalonians 2, he makes this broad application. The second coming of Jesus is not going to happen until these two things take place, until after these two things take place. The first one he mentions is going to be a rebellion an apostasy, a falling away. The second thing he mentions is this, this man of sin is going to be revealed. All right? Those two conditions have got to be met, Thessalonians, in order for, uh, in order, well, excuse me, before Jesus Christ comes back. Let's say it like that. All right? So it is that we look at the man of sin. All right. Note a couple of things about this. Paul says, don't be troubled, don't be shaken, uh, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Beginning of verse 3, let no one deceive you by any means. Here are the conditions. For that day will not come unless the falling away, apostasia, apostasy. And it's kind of implied, according to the context of Thessalonians, this is going to be because of 
persecution. Oh, one of the worst things that the devil can do, and the, one of the things that he tried to do throughout the first century is to make it so bad for these Christians under the Roman Empire that it would be that they just say, that's it, I'm done with Christianity. That's it, I don't want to be a disciple of the Lord anymore. And you find all, that message all the way through the book of Revelation about how Christ says, be faithful until death and I'll give you the crown of life, speaking about a church that was going to be cast into prison, some uh, members of the church that were going to be cast into prison and have difficulty for uh, a period of time. But he says there's going to be a falling away that occurs, verse 3, there's first condition, and the man of sin, anomia, lawlessness, lawlessness is revealed, and he also refers to him as the son of perdition. These two names are the reference to, the, uh, to whoever this person but note that there's a definite time and there is a definitive person or an office. The falling away, the man of sin, or the son of perdition. A couple of characteristics that he mentions about what he does. Verse 4, who? Who are we talking about? All right. Well, in context, we don't know uh, as far as the... Uh, uh, the definitive identity of this person, but who is it in the context? Who is he referring to? The son of perdition, the man of lawlessness. Who? Number one, opposes. He turns himself against. All right? He turns himself against, and he also exalts himself above all that is called God. So he turns himself against or opposes God, and he exalts himself above all that is called God or all that is worship, verse 4. Note also, verse 4, he sits as God in the temple of God. Word temple in Greek is neos, N-E-O-S. It's never used to describe the Jewish temple. Okay, that's a word that's never used in Scripture to define or to describe the Jewish temple. It was never called such after the resurrection of Jesus. And so it is that you've got this word here that sits, he sits in this place of worship as though he is God. Okay, uh, verse 4, showing himself that he is God. Here's a person that's so full of himself and so pompous that he says, you ought to be bowing down and worshiping me. You ought to be treating me like I'm God, or here's an office that uh, this person occupies, okay? Interestingly enough, Paul says, verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? It wasn't just that he's writing to them for the first time, that this is brand new information for them, that they're just seeing it for the first time. He says, I was with you. You remember that? And you remember that discussion that we had where we talked about this man of sin and this son of perdition and how it was that he was going to be revealed in this time? I told you this before. Verse 6, and now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. So here's another characteristic. There is something that's holding back this man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, uh, from being revealed. It's possible, and you might write a cross-reference and take a look at it, that uh, Paul is referring back to Daniel chapter 7, that there's a time of persecution that's about to take place, but there's something that's restraining, that's holding back, holding them back. But whatever's restraining this man of lawlessness was, note this, contemporary with Paul. Okay? 
he's contemporary with Paul, and the Thessalonians know that there's something that's going to happen that's now restraining, that he may be revealed, verse 6, in his own time. Verse 7, that restraining power will one day be gone, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Listen, if something's already at work, does he mean 2,000 years later? He doesn't. Folks, please don't be misunderstood, or please don't. The ability that people have to read into the text, whatever it is that they want to say is great in passages like this, because they're general enough that you can really make it apply to just about anybody if you want to. But what you have to look for are those time words that really indicate that this is something that's going to happen that Paul would feel necessary to write to these Christians back in the first century to say, be careful about this. Be careful that you're not carried away from this. It's not to say, Thessalonians, 2,000 years later, there's going to come a president or somebody in Congress or, or a, a religious leader or something like that. And the question would be, how would that be a comfort to the Corinthians or <laughs> Thessalonians? How would that be a comfort to these Christians here at Thessalonica that 2,000 years later, God is going to send somebody uh, or send Jesus Christ back after a man of sin is revealed. Just for a moment, let's take a field trip. Flip over to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation in chapter 1. You want to talk about a book that's been abused as far as prophecy goes and as far as uh, reading into things go. All you have to do is just watch late night cable TV just for a few minutes and you'll see uh, religious teachers on there that'll try and tie in world events to things that are happening in the book of Revelation because, again, it's cryptic, it's apocalyptic, it's a language of revealing something by pictures. And so if somebody were inclined, they might say, well, obviously this beast that comes up out of the sea is obviously this person or this institution or this, this group. And you can probably find characteristics that are going to fit that. But what you have to look for in books like this are time words. And for example, uh, Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, Jesus, to show his servants things which must, what does he say? Shortly come to pass. The Greek word for shortly, the word taxi. Anybody ever been to New York City? Anybody ever take a taxi in New York City? It is a near-death experience, or at least mine was. I say, I want to go to Madison Square Garden. <laughs> they don't waste any time zipping in and out of traffic. Why? Because they're going to get you there quickly. That's the word here in Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. From the downbeat of Revelation, Jesus is giving this message to John the Apostle there on the island of Patmos to say, we're going to take a taxi. <laughs> Again, metaphorically, he's saying these things are going to shortly take place. And again, the question becomes, if it is that we're talking about this beast of, uh, of the sea and beast of the land and, and the great red dragon and all of these things beginning in Revelation chapter 13 going all the way to the end, and you're looking at these pictures and saying churches that are suffering persecution, God's going to take care of it ultimately in 2,000, 5,000 years. Yay. What comfort would that have been to those, to those churches of Asia Minor there in Revelation 
chapters 2 and 3. What help would that have been? The message of God in the book of Revelation is victory through Jesus Christ. And victory, but also a message of hang in there. A message of steadfastness because God is going to take care of those things. These things, this time of persecution you're about to endure, God's going to take care of it. You need to remain faithful. Stay, stay with it. Look for the time words because it's helpful to the understanding <clears throat> that it's going to be a comfort to these people. All right, back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're back at verse 7. Paul says this restraining power is going to move, verse 7. That lawless one is going to be revealed. And note how he's going to be revealed. His revealing will be, verse 8, the coming of the lawless one, or the, the, then the lawless one will be revealed. Whom, who is the whom referred to? The lawless one, right? Whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Whose coming, that is of the lawless one, is according to the power, working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. There is something that, about this person who is going to be revealed. And he's contemporary with Paul. That restraining power is going to be one uh, day gone, and he's going to uh, be revealed with all of these power and signs and lying wonders. Verse 10, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. Who are we talking about? talking about the people that are going to follow after this lawless one. We're talking about the folks that are going to not love the truth the way that they ought to or not receive the love of the truth. It's kind of like um, what he says back up in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here are people who are being led astray by this son of perdition, by this lawless one among whom all those perish because they did not receive the love of the truth. Verse 11, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Why would God do that? Verse 11, for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Doesn't seem like that's the type of God that, uh, that, you know, that we serve, does it? How does God do that? For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Let's wrestle with this just for a moment. All right. Uh, Morris says maybe it's like God giving up on them because they wouldn't be obedient to his command. I'm, here's the question. God told Moses way back in the book of Exodus that he was going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Because he refused the truth. Because he refused the truth. When somebody is resistant to the truth, when somebody is absolutely set that they're not going to obey the word of God, but they're going to stand up foolishly against that, is that God doing that? 
Or is it the people really doing it to themselves? All right, stand up just for a second, Alan. I'm going to use this illustration. <laughs> He's going to teach the rest of the class about the man of sin. No. All right, I want you to push me just for a second. <laughs> we have somebody ought to be putting this on YouTube here. All right, he's trying to push me, but what am I doing? I'm resisting. Because Alan's will is that I go backwards, because he's pushing on me, but at the same time, because I'm resisting, who's doing it? Well, there's partly Alan because he's pushing, and partly me because I'm the one that's resisting. What did God want for Pharaoh? Yeah, thank you, Alan. <laughs> what did God want for Pharaoh more than anything else? Let my people go. What was Pharaoh unwilling to do? Let the people go. Who was doing it? It was God's word pushing on a disobedient man. When you have somebody who, verse 10, verse 11, says that they did not receive the love of the truth, they did not believe the truth, verse 12. Uh, you actually see that, verse 10? They did not receive the love of the truth that they should be saved. Verse 12, they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Here's the question. Did God do that? God gave the truth, but what were those people constantly doing? They're pushing against it. They're continuing in their own willful way. So as God sends them strong delusion, it's because God is still pushing on them with the truth, but they're unwilling to follow it and unwilling to do it. And so it is in a lot of respects that they're doing it to themselves. You find the same kind of idea in Romans chapter 1. For that reason, God gave them over to do what's not fitting. For that reason, God gave them up to, un, uh, to unclean lust or something that, to that effect. For that reason, God gave them up. Why did God do that? Because, folks, when you reject the truth, when you reject God and his will, there's going to be something that's put in its place that's stubbornly opposed to everything that God is trying to do. You find people like that today, right? And you find people that look at the word of God and say, no, I'm not going to accept that, not at all. And you're going to find people that will push hard against that but they're going to have to push back with some kind of ungodly and unrighteous lifestyle to the point where, well, they're doing it to themselves and they're doing it to their own detriment. Here are people who are now aligned themselves with this man of sin or this man of lawlessness and this great apostasy falling away because they're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in receiving the love of the truth and uh, that they might be saved. They're having pleasure in unrighteousness rather than believing the truth, verse 12. Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved from the Lord, because uh, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Corinthians or Thessalonians, I appreciate you because you're hanging in there. I appreciate you because you did receive the love of the truth, that you did, chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, turn away from God, those idols to serve the true and the living God. I'm so thankful that you're not among those people who have been sent strong delusion, who didn't receive the love of the truth. You hang in there. Now, let's talk about the man of sin just for a moment. There have been several theories, many theories actually, that have been proposed about who this person is. Number one, some people believe the man of sin is just evil personified. 
evil personified. This view claims that every time there is a deceiving and blatantly evil influence in world history, this prophecy is fulfilled. Um, Islam, when it came about, what, about the mid-500s, I guess. Uh, fascism, um, especially in our day, uh, or in our uh, most recent uh, history, uh, 40s, 30s, 40s, 50s, communism uh, in the 60s, 70s. There's a lot of different evil belief systems that have caused people to do some really horrible and atrocious things, sometimes in the name of God. People believe that this may be just evil personified here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, the second view uh, that's worthy of our talking about is that people believe that this was Jews antagonistic to Christianity. Jews antagonistic to Christianity. Again, in kind of a uh, metaphorical type of uh, situation, this view holds that the man of sin appeared and was destroyed by the coming of the Lord. There in verse uh, verse 8, the coming of the Lord when Jerusalem was destroyed or obliterated in 70 AD. Okay, Here's the Jews that are still holding up this empty temple and this place that is uh, was designed for God's worship, but didn't really have any of the power with that. Um, but that was the man of sin that was destroyed by the coming of the Lord when the, Jew, uh, the Jerusalem was obliterated or destroyed in 70 AD. View number three is a future antichrist. Future antichrist. Among the denominations, this is probably one of the most popular, I guess, viewpoints of, um, of this passage here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This view holds that there is a, going to be a dominant and deceiving political and or religious figure that's going to arise just prior to the end of time. Okay? Um, any of you have uh, be familiar with, or are familiar with the Tim LaHaye series, the Left Behind series, the whole catalog of books? Um, I think they made them into movies as well. But you've got this uh, singular religious leader that's going to arise and... and who's going to cause the war of Armageddon and all that stuff that's, uh, that's there and, again, interpretive of Revelation. And that man is the Antichrist, who is also the man of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Strangely enough, or interestingly enough, I guess, is 2 Thessalonians 2 doesn't use the word Antichrist. It doesn't use the word Antichrist. John, in his epistle in 1 John chapter 2, uh, yeah, 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 4, uses the term, but he also uses the term in a plural sense. There are many antichrists, 1 John chapter 2. What does that mean? It means that it's got to be different than this man of sin here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Why? Because the way John describes antichrist is a belief system rather than an individual. A series of choices that somebody makes about the deity of Jesus and about the incarnation of Jesus rather than somebody who is a well-focused religious figure or per, a person who is, uh, uh, who is here described in 2 Thessalonians 2. You know, John uses that word in the plural to refer to certain false teachers who were already present in his time. Um, view number four. This is very, very popular. And that is he's referring to Roman Catholicism, particularly the role of the man that we know as the Pope, or the office, rather, of the Pope, the papacy. 
And there is a whole lot that you can look at and say, this seems to be a whole lot similar to what you're looking at here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The man of sin is actually the office of the Pope, since the Pope seems to fit these characteristics, especially verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself above all that's called God or is worshipped, so that he sits in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Anybody know what the technical term for the Pope is, for the office? His father. And he is also known as the vicar of Christ. What's a vicar? Substitutes, yeah, kind of, except it's more he sits in the seat of, or he sits in the place of, or he sits as, um, not as a substitute, but is in the place of God or in the place of Jesus Christ. As the Pope is referred to as the vicar of Jesus Christ, he sits and the edicts that he makes are just the same, according to these people, as the as if Jesus Christ were here and giving us edicts today. That is, he's going to sit there in that, uh, in that spot and he's going to make those... Uh, make those edicts, and they're going to be as binding as everything that Jesus said. That's the fourth view. The fifth one is that there is a uh, view that this is the Roman emperor who is going to persecute the church. A Roman emperor who persecutes the church. This view holds that the man of sin or man of lawlessness is the future uh, Speaking again from the uh, picture of 51 AD, okay, when this epistle was written, future Roman emperor who would claim to be a god, who would demand to wor uh, worship from people and persecute those who uh, refuse to obey him. Likely candidates in the near future from 51 AD would be the emperor Nero. Nero, as he fiddled while Rome burns, as the old saying goes. You remember that Nero blamed it on who? He blamed it on Christians. Uh, Nero, according to some of the early writings, according to um, uh, the Fox Book of Martyrs, was the one that put Christians on stakes and dipped them in hot oil and, and set them ablaze so that they could light up his garden parties. Uh, there was a whole lot that he was the one that uh, would, would put Christians in a bag and a uh, bag with a wild animal and tie it up and, and let that thing roll around on the ground while that animal ripped, ripped apart those people. Um, but he was one who demanded worship as a god. The emperor Domitian, if you take the late date for the book of Revelation, about the 90s, uh, Domitian, who reigned from 81 to 96, was also one who demanded to be worshipped as god. In fact, he had a cult of people that were following him. Did you know that? And they were a cult of emperor worship to say, if you disagree that the emperor is god, or if you will not honor him and worship him as God, then we're going to we're going to put you to the uh, to the fire. We're going to uh, persecute you. Um, the Emperor Diocletian, 303, 313, uh, Decius, uh, 250. It could be referring to exactly what we're talking about here. Um, Dealing with these five just for a few moments, number one, principle of evil or evil personified, Islam, fascism, communism, uh, all of these isms that you talk about. Note that we may reject this because a way he talks about this in verse three. He says there is the apostasy or the falling away. 
there is some specific event that Paul has got in mind here in verse 3 that talks about this in concrete terms. It's not a continuous thing. Anytime that evil is going to arise, that that's going to be the man of sin. He says there are two events that have to happen before the Lord's going to come back. The first one is the falling away and the revealing of the man of sin. It's not perpetual. It's not a perpetual thing. Okay, as far as the uh, these two events occurring. Number two, if we talk about Judaism with regard to being destroyed by the coming of the Lord in AD 70, you're looking at some really hardened and militant Jews. But he's talking specifically about an apostasy event. These Jews held to their beliefs and their, um, well, and to their uh, militant Judaism to say that the Romans have no claim on our land to the point where there were so many that, uh, how many that committed uh, uh, suicide up there at Masada, um, 700, 500, something like that, uh, as the Romans were building a rampart to get up to this huge uh, fortified fortress. You know, there's characteristics of this that don't fit with that view of uh, the Judaism uh, being destroyed by the coming of the Lord. Future Antichrist, 1 John 2, 1 John 4. You read the context of that and realize the background of what John is dealing with in 1 John 2 and 1 John 4 is this um, doctrine of Gnosticism, the denial of the Lord's deity. Paul says this, back in AD 51, is already at work. This is um, uh, something that's, uh, that's continuing here or beginning here in the first century, verse 7. The apostate church of Rome, the papacy. Well, you flip back just a couple of pages to 1 Timothy chapter 4. What does he say there in 1 Timothy 4? Sorry, forward a couple of pages. My bad. 1 Timothy 4. As far as the doctrine goes, yes, that's exactly in line of what he's talking about here in 1 Timothy 4. He says, the Spirit expressly says, in the latter times, some will depart. There's an apostasy. There's a leaving of the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing's to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving. We're almost to Mardi Gras, right? You know, you find Mardi Gras is a time of denial, and it's sinful to eat certain foods, and it's sinful to, and well, after Mardi Gras, I guess, to behave in certain ways because of those things. You know, when you find people who are saying that uh, Christians don't have the right to be married, I mean, that absolutely falls exactly in line with what we're talking about with Roman Catholicism. Um, the papacy, however, was initially restrained by pagan Rome. And that may be an argument, but again, the question comes, how is this going to be comforting to the Thessalonians if the papacy wasn't really established until... Um, what, 476 when Rome fell, when it wasn't really solidified until that, uh, until that time. You know, the vicar of Christ whose word is infallible or on par with God's word. There are characteristics here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that seem to fit with that. When you're looking, however, at the Roman emperor who persecuted the church, I think the evidence is strongly, and I've waffled on this just as far as my own study goes, between uh, the papacy in between this uh, emperor who uh, persecutes the church and who is demanding that he be worshipped as God. You know, the church fathers called people who folded under persecution apostates. 
Oh, that is when your feet are put to the fire and when you have Romans that are knocking on your door saying, you need to swear allegiance to the emperor. You need to worship the emperor. Otherwise it is that we're going to take away your card to be able to do business and, and the guild or uh, to be able to um, uh, make a living for yourself. Or even worse, we're going to kill you or kill your family if you don't worship God or worship the, um, the emperor as God. Um, there are similarities between this person and the beast of Revelation 13. Um, as you know, the city of Rome, the the empire of Rome. But again, there's nothing definitive that we can look at in our day to say, "Aha! I see that this is exactly that." And that's the reason why we struggle with passages like this because we see something that may be clearly definitive, but then again, it could refer to several other things. A couple of lessons from the man of sin, and we'll uh, we'll move on just for a moment. Early Christians, number one, took seriously the second coming of Jesus Christ. The apostles did not dispel them of that notion, but rather just said, it's not quite yet. We know you're waiting for the second coming, but it's not going to be just yet. In fact, as we look at 2 Thessalonians 3 next week, you're going to find people that began to quit their jobs and began to wait around for the time when Jesus was going to come. Because what's the point of earning a living if I know that the second coming is imminent? And so they began to be busybodies. They began to be moochers and wanted to go around and uh, really just uh, uh, mooch off of their friends or their, their, their Christian family. The apostles didn't dispel them in this notion, but rather just said not quite yet. But note that they were living in hope. Living in hope. Today might be the day. Folks, it's wrong to be obsessed with the end of time, so much so that we are consumed by it. And again, all you have to do is turn on late night TV just for a few minutes and see uh, the Jack Van Empies of the world and how it is that they are just obsessed with trying to predict the end of time. Um, but it's also equally wrong to be oblivious or unconcerned with the coming of Jesus Christ. Rather, it is there's a balanced approach to having your faith rooted in the things you're doing now, your love being on display for those people to see now, but also for your hope to realize that, brothers and sisters, today could be the day. This could be the last day in all humanity as we know it here on this earth. And if that's the case, then we say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, we're ready. We want that to happen. And the question becomes, if I'm not living with that mindset or if I'm living saying, oh man, I hope Jesus Christ doesn't come back today because I really want to see that ball game this afternoon or I really want to go to this thing or I really want to do that, then the question has to be asked, are we really living for the Lord and are we really looking forward to the time that he's coming back? I had a grandfather that used to say this, um, this world is not my home, but I'm not homesick yet. And you look at that and kind of go, it kind of describes a lot of us, doesn't it? This world is not my home, but I'm not homesick yet. I'm still enjoying too much of what I'm doing here in this world. Um, number two. Number one, uh, early Christians took seriously the second coming of Christ. That was the point. Number two, the Bible clearly prophesies about apostasy. That is, falling away of Christians. It should not happen whenever that occurs that we are just caught off guard or completely surprised by it. There are Christians who 
we think sometimes are solid and are exactly what they ought to be. It hurts deeply, or it ought to hurt deeply, when we see those Christians say, you know what, I'm done with this. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. I don't want to serve Jesus Christ anymore. And they turn back to, well, Peter would say, as a dog returns to his own vomit, his old man returns to his folly. That happens. Paul said that was going to happen as far as the eldership goes in uh, Acts chapter 20, the eldership of Ephesus. Um, he mentioned back in 1 Timothy chapter 4 that that was going to happen in the latter times. It, it, he mentioned it was going to happen in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and chapter two, uh, 4, verse 1 and, 1 and following, about how there were going to be teachers that didn't want to hinder sound doctrine, but wanted to have teachers that would tickle their ears, tell them the things that they wanted to hear. They're not interested in that anymore. It kind of sounds like these people here of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Bible prophesies clearly about the apostasy, but number three, folks, we need to examine everything that we hear. We need to examine everything that we hear. Look at what he says there in verse two of chapter two. Christians don't soon be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us. There are people today who will speak presumptuously. God hasn't revealed it, but I'm going to talk about it. God hasn't said it, but I'm going to go there. And where it is that the Bible is silent and where it is that we might have some ideas about some things, if God hasn't said anything definitively about it, the best thing we can do is keep our mouth shut. Because if it's going to upset the faith of some, like it obviously did here, but talking about the second coming of these Christians, 2 Thessalonians 2, then we could be doing damage to the bride of Christ. We need to examine everything that we hear. Look at the admonition, and we mentioned this as the key verse of 2 Thessalonians, verse 15 of chapter 2. Therefore, brethren, because this man of sin is going to be revealed, because there's going to be coming apostasy, he says, stand fast and hold the traditions, the sacred pattern that God has given Jesus and Jesus gave through his Holy Spirit to the apostles and the prophets who faithfully gave it to the Christians of that first century. You hold fast to that tradition which you were taught whether by word or by our epistle. We don't have the apostles anymore around to give us their word. We do, however, have the epistles. We have the written word of Jesus Christ, the written word, excuse me, of these apostles who were inspired by the Holy Spirit, given by Jesus Christ. And we can hold faithfully to that. Note, note verse 10 through 12 again, that the man of sin idea, person, is deceptive. And there may be people that want to believe a lie. It makes life more convenient. It makes life more predictable or there's a path of least resistance there, Paul says you don't take that. When you're studying a book that's got a chapter like this, just on a practical means in 2 Thessalonians 2, especially if you're looking back at, as we did a little while ago, at the book of Revelation, there may be things that confuse you. There may be things that you may not fully understand. There's I'm looking at going, I have no idea. I have no idea. What we do have an idea about and what we can understand clearly are what the Bible says to us as Christians as far as our behavior goes in light of these things. 
Are you hearing me? I've used a whole lot of words to say that. Look at the commands of what he gives in a chapter like this to see what a Christian's responsibility is. Look at this. Number one, he says, be aware. Verse two, don't be shaken in mind. Don't be troubled. Verse three, don't be deceived. Verse 12, don't be a person who did not believe the truth but had pleasures in unrighteousness. Don't be a person like these people. You'll be a person that's not shaken in your faith. You'll be a person who's solid and founded in your faith. You'll be a person who is going to continue doing what you know is right and not being deceived by people that are saying that they're speaking with the authority of an apostle and all these first two people. Don't be shaken. Be aware. Number two, he's going to say, be mindful. Be mindful. What's the command in a chapter like this? Verse five, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? Remember the inspired words. Go back and point back to the Bible and say, I see that the Bible says this here, so therefore I'm not going to be carried away with that there. I'm going to continue holding on to this. Verse 10. These people uh, followed this lawless one with all unrighteous deception among those who perished because they did not receive the love of the truth. I want to love the truth more than anything else. I want to hold fast to the truth. That's my command. That's my responsibility. Love the truth. Verse 15. Stand fast. Hold fast the traditions you were taught. I'm going to hold on to what it is that I know is right. And last two, verses 16 to 17, this is the second prayer of Paul in this epistle. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God the Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work, word and work. I'm going to continue doing what I know is right. I'm going to continue following what I know is right. Be comforted by the message of grace that God has given us. And that message of grace is what we'll spend a little bit more time in the worship hour talking about. Thank you all for your attention. I hope this has been helpful. As I mentioned, to direct all questions about the man of sin to Alan, he is going to be here until uh, probably 1 o'clock answering questions for you. So thank you all so much.